So I'm thrilled to be speaking with my next guest, not only because he has a proven track record of leadership and business abilities, also because he's a storyteller and seems to have lived a really cool life. <laughs> with me today is Hap Clap, a longtime leader, consultant, mentor, author, and someone with a distinct interest in environmental and social activism. So because this is your story, I'll have you just share with us what you'd like to know um, about you. Well, thank you, Brittany. Nice to be here. Uh, sharing about me, that's, it's a lengthy story, but I'll try to uh, talk <laughs> it a little bit. I would say the, uh, the strategy I've had and, and that will be on my epitaph is probably often wrong, but never in doubt. And that's kind of how I've approached everything. When I was uh, in grade school, high school, uh, college, I never did anything the way other people did, which is a perfect background, I think, for being an entrepreneur. And mm. grade school, I never went to school after 12 o'clock noon. They let, me, uh, they let me play sports or read, read independent reading like Hegel and Marx. And, and uh, when I went to high school, I, it turned out that my father wanted me to go to MIT, and I didn't see where I fit into MIT. So I decided out of desperation because I wanted to play football, uh, the only place that uh, would go was Stanford. So I applied as a safety school and got in there. And then I didn't like the <laughs> the major that they gave me. So I ended up uh, writing my own major, which took me meeting about 15 advisors before somebody gave in. And uh, I gave it a title. So when I went to business school, it helped me. I called it executive management. So I think that probably <laughs> go to my resume. But I, you know, I was always an entrepreneur, uh, even when I was a kid, when I was in school, as I mentioned, in grade school, one of the things I got to do is run a school store because I didn't go to school in the afternoon. And, and uh, I uh, actually, along with my brother, one decided that we would make money off our parents' friends one time. We put together a gambling night with poker and roulette and, and uh, a few other games and brought them in. Parents said, well, you just realize you might lose money. We said, well, we've never seen a, uh, a casino lose money. So we did that. And I worked at uh, summer jobs and whatever. But uh, at, with that as a background, I ended up uh, actually running a company when I was in college because my father died when I was a senior at school. We had a family company in Spokane, mm -hmm. Washington, which is a long ways from Stanford, about 900 miles. So I was going to school and running the company simultaneously. And then having done that, uh, when I graduated, I concluded that although it was an opportunity, it wasn't one we were going to survive in because we weren't big enough to be competitive with the warehousers of the world, the Boise Cascade at that time, Anderson Window Wall. So I decided to sell the company and, and uh, simultaneously get my MBA and at Stanford. So then I kind of had four jobs. I had the job of, of running the company. I had the job of selling the company. I had the job of getting an MBA. And the, the job I liked most was drinking beer, which, <laughs> which was the one I was good at. So, uh, so that was kind of a background that, that uh, led me into deciding that I, I couldn't work for anybody else because I had ideas that didn't fit with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like a lot of our, you know, the more uh, well-known leaders uh, of our time, you know, they, <laughs> I feel like we're always surprised by something about their, uh, about their background and the things that 
you know, I, that's kind of like what I wanted to get to, you know, and these sorts of conversations are these fun little stories. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for sharing that. Sure. Um, so specifically at what moment did you realize, you know, that the cross section between your personal sort of mission and your goals and ambition and your professional goals, you know, you, you've, you know, especially in your earlier years of, you know, especially, uh, in the your tenure at the North Face, you did some um, investing in environmental and, and social causes, and um, you know it would be just interesting to get your you know the story around that sort of cross section and you know how the personal values and business decisions sort of collided. Well, I, you know, I never really thought that I would have two lives. Uh, one a business life and another one another life. It, it just never dawned on me that that was the way to do it. Uh, you know, I always thought if you could be sort of laser-like focused on what you did and that everything that you do ties into one thing, then it made sense. And over time and through a number of people that I met uh, working at uh, day labor jobs and, and when I was in the wilderness and uh, I, spent a lot of time as a kid because when you're raised in Spokane, Washington, that's what you do. So I hunted, I fished, I climbed, I uh, did all those other things. But I always saw that as part of my life. And even when I went to high school, I had some courses, one in, in Glacier National Park, where we spent two or three weeks there just looking at what was going on. And I always thought that was going to be part of what I did. But I developed some sort of uh, environmental social philosophies that didn't really fit with anybody else. I didn't believe in planned obsolescence, uh, but that was the nature of the day. I, I didn't understand why women were paid half of what men were paid, and and I didn't understand why you wouldn't work for, look for the best employees wherever they came from, uh, and irrespective of their sort of sexual persuasion. I, I believe we call it sustainability now, environmentalism is kind of what we called it at the time I did it. But I believed all those things were right. And because I didn't want to separate my one life from, you know, which was my home life from my professional life, I believed that business should represent exactly the same things I believed in. And that pivotal point you were asking about, I think, happened when after I'd sold a company and finished my MBA, I thought somebody would offer me a, a chance to run a company uh, because why wouldn't they? And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> did. So I decided I was going to have to work for a large company and then look around on the side for something. And it, it didn't strike me as being the right thing to do. I always believed being 100% in on everything I had. Um, many of the large companies didn't seem to represent all those things I was talking about. But I, not having an option, I went out and I interviewed with a number of them, consumer goods companies because I thought I had a flair for branding and sales and marketing and uh, ended up getting a number of interviews. But the pivotal one was with Procter & Gamble and where I went in, it was an eight-hour interview with eight different people. Uh, our first was the HR department and and you know as, as I said you know I wasn't sure they represented all these values but uncomfortable going from the fast-paced world of, of Stanford Silicon Valley and and here I am in Cincinnati their headquarters and the first thing he says to me is is your name Hap or is it I see both of those on your CV I, I said well either one but most of my friends call me Hap and he said well okay and he said you're going to be Kenneth when you work here because <laughs> nicknames don't give you the gravitas to manage older people when you're going to be doing that. So we've got to be a little more formal there. 
And you said in the same vein, you need to be wearing a white shirt and a tie. Well, I was wearing a white shirt and a tie. And if he didn't think I could figure it out, I didn't know why I was there. So I'm, I'm realizing I, I'm in the wrong place. And then he asked me the question that interviewers always seem to ask, which is, uh, if you were to join our organization, where do you envision you would be in five years? And knowing I'm out of there, I said, well, if, and I'd like to underscore the word if, I were to join Procter & Gamble, I would expect to be president of Procter & Gamble in five years. And that doesn't seem like such a big deal. Uh, strangely enough, they offered me a job, but but you know while i i make light of that uh it was a true story but i make light of it but it really was the best interview i could have had most of the time when you interview with people they they ask you what you want and then they tell you that's what happens there and you take the job and then osmotically over time it dawns on you that none of that was true well in this case he was setting up what the environment was and when i started matching up the environment of being told what to do, an environment where you know, consumer goods like Procter & Gamble are all about uh, repetition and buying things and, and sustainability was not an issue there at that time, nor was uh, any of the other policies. What I realized is I didn't fit, nor would I fit anywhere else. So because of that great interview, I decided you know, that if you can't work for anybody else, what you really need to do is set up a company and set it up in your own way. And I set up one, which was the North Face. I did it because it was in an area I knew something about, or at least I thought I did because I'd used a lot of the product. And a lot of my friends were in that business. It wasn't a business at that time, but that's what they did. Uh, whether they were guides or hunters or professional outdoor people, uh, all of those things were something which I could relate to. And I thought I could overlay my thoughts about uh, social causes, environmental causes uh, on a company like that. Mm-hmm. Now, in you know, doing some research, of course, I wanted to know who I was talking with. <laughs> um, I noticed a lot the, you know, the term pioneer trailblazer used to describe you in various forums, you know, other speaking events that you've done, you know, just describing you and as an author of your book and so on and so forth. What's your reaction to actually being referred to as a pioneer or trailblazer? Well, the old joke is the pioneers get all the arrows and that's probably true, but uh, it's actually very gratifying uh, to know you help build an industry, particularly an industry that that uh, has seemingly taken on some of the values we talked about. You know, I don't know if if the type of people drawn to this business were naturally all environmentalists by nature. I would think so, uh, whether they had a number of these uh, social causes in mind, uh, doing well with business, but you look at what the industry is doing now, the steps they're taking, whether it's with Bears Ear or with uh, you know, other environmental climate change with respect to uh, supporting national park uh, system, all those things are there. But uh, I, I do know that because we were one of the leaders and one of the pioneers in doing it, we helped set some of the standards for the industry. And that, that makes me feel pretty good. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, to, to follow up on that, you know, probably closely related to what you just said, but what sort of impact do you hope to have on the world, basically? Well, we wanted to change the world. That was the whole concept uh, that was embedded in what we did at North Face. 
Uh, we believed in, and subscribed to Thoreau's comment that in wilderness is the preservation of the earth. Mm. We believed, I believed, that if we could facilitate people heading into the wilderness, and that's what we did initially, it wasn't the fashion brand that you see now. We were a camping brand that we used innovative materials from the Vietnam War. Uh, aircraft aluminum was repurposed to tent poles and pack frames. And uh, we used parachute cloth for sleeping bags and tent tops and, and funky clothing. And in doing we lightened the load by 50%. People went miles into the wilderness, not just a few hundred feet as they did in camping. And women joined the act because it wasn't a beast of burden act any longer. And so what happened was we were going to take people to the wilderness and have them come back being stewards of the earth. And at that time, it was a Vietnam War, a lot of negativity in the city, certainly in Berkeley, where we were located. We wanted to get out of that. We thought that all of that city problem was something that was negative for society. It wasn't positive. And we believed in environment. We believed in social causes. In doing it, what we thought we could do was change the world. And I will say that what I see in the cities right now with uh, all of the problems that we have, income inequality, gun violence, uh, all of these uh, things, you know, the marginalization of, of people of color, uh, the, the fact that there's still discrimination against gays and, and lesbian, all those things. We, I believe right now, a rebirth of the industry uh, in terms of its impact would be great because we're at an inflection point uh, caused by this COVID dynamic uh, that's out there. And hopefully the inflection point will bring us back to be able to use the, the wilderness in the same way we were looking for when we were there. I worked with a, a guy by the name of Buckminster Fuller, who's Bowser, genius, brilliant man, fun to work with. But he, he put a quote in, in a book he gave me one day, and he said, uh, to have a member of the generation that's going to change society for the benefit of all mankind. Uh, and that was a, a wonderful memo. I'm not sure my generation is going to do it. I'm hoping, however, my generation can motivate or encourage the next generation to do a lot better than we did. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to remember that things happen in sort of a, you know, sometimes a, a, a chain of events, right? And even though, I, I don't know, it's it's the first step, right? And that's what ultimately being a leader is all about. But it's really just making a change in one area of society and how that can be replicated somewhere else. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think you sort of, you know, you put a lot of really strong steps forward that can definitely be replicated and. In, in social, you know, gaining social equality and, and environmental um, activism as well. But yeah, I, you know, I totally agree. It's a great foundation. The, there, um, there's a quote from Lao Tzu, uh, who is the, the Chinese leader, and he said, the wicked leader mm -hmm. is he is who is feared. Uh, the good leader is he who is revered. The great leader is the one who, when the work is over, everybody said, we did it ourselves. And that, that was what we tried to impose. What we were trying to do is encourage people to believe they were making a difference so they in turn would encourage other people to do it because top-down dictatorial ways of working really uh, don't work. Too much. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to sell a way of living which could have been interpreted as being a bit too pushy uh, being an environmentalist, uh, there was lots of lashback at, at tree huggers and granolas and 
<laughs> and it uh, didn't bother us a whole lot, but we didn't want to come across as if we knew it better than anybody else, even though we thought we had a solution for the problems that existed out there. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I last night I actually spent spent the night in a tent uh, today. I'm 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 along a lake in Maine. So, uh, yeah, I think I think you and I would would get along pretty well. And, and I think uh, I've not accomplished nearly a quarter of what you've accomplished. But, you know, I think there's a <laughs> I think oftentimes people can be uh, can be misunderstood and also undervalue. I- the uh, importance of staying in touch with, you know, the, the actual reality of, of, of the world in terms of nature. Well, absolutely, absolutely true. And, and as I said, we, we felt that Thoreau's quote was accurate. Uh, when you can relate to that, you can come back and, and impact things. We have a lot of urban mm-hmm. problems. We have a lot of civilization problems. Uh, pandemic is, is highlighting them, but many of these things existed before that, at that time, and they were building. As I said, income inequality is just unsustainable in terms of some people being so wealthy and others having nothing and having to fight to survive. And the battle of immigrants mm-hmm. and, and the marginalization of people, Black Lives Matter, uh, Me Too movement, all of those things mm-hmm. were crying for some some leadership coming out. And where, where do you get the, the belief of what is good and what's true and what is valuable? Uh, the spirituality of being in wilderness is one of those things that's there. And I can tell you that mm-hmm. everybody I know who comes back from, you know, going to the wilderness and maybe it's just a day hike or maybe it's, you know, it's a lengthy expedition somewhere else, but, but comes back recharged, re-energized and ready to take on the, the battle. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I wanted to shift, um, quickly over to your book. So two books, so Conquering the North Face um, and Almost, mm-hmm. and incredible books and really, you know, great, pretty, you know, quick reads if people want to check them out. But um, I want to talk from the perspective of your books and what's going on right now. What are your, you know, thoughts on the overlap between the stories that you told in those books and, you know, some of the concepts that you talked about leadership and um, the environment and all that stuff in those books and the overlap um, with what's going on right now with, with COVID and everything sure. else. Well, the first thing I'd say that my books are written in the way that I believe you can best communicate, and that is their stories and storytelling. And storytelling's mm-hmm. been used forever. That's what the Bible uses, parables, whatever, to be able to convey something. I'm not a big believer in the formula books like the seven habits or the four Bs of marketing, because I think that they're intellectual, they're not emotional, they don't tie to any other situation, it's, it's something there. I believe a story is something that you can take, you may not, you may find it interesting, so you retain it, but then at a certain point when there's a need to apply it, you can pull that back in. So that that's the technique. My book, Conquering the North Face, is about leadership, and it's about risk-taking, and it's about... Uh, success. Uh, the book Almost is about failure. A company in uh, Silicon Valley that should have succeeded but didn't and failed. But as I said, both of those are storytelling, so you can read it for for the entertainment value. But the idea is obtained for a long period of time, and that is exactly 
what I want people to do. So the purpose of the book, for example, when you're talking about people that are trying to succeed, uh, you, the stories in there, uh, one, uh, just to uh, bring more, one, a story about us not going into skiing. I didn't want to go into skiing as a company uh, because I didn't see where we fit. The persistence that happened is two people in the company believed that that is what we needed to do. And they repeatedly came back to me and said, there's a role for North Face in the downhill ski world. And I said, no, I think it's too much fashion. And they came back again, and they came back again, and they came back again. And a combination of them wearing me down, but also uh, starting to prove it. So what they did is said, we will do a test market with some people who are on the hill all the time we will go to ski instructors and give them product and ask them to review it to use it when they aren't instructing we'll take it to, to patrol people ask them what they're doing those people know what a good product is and what they were doing in doing that in listening to those people but also to people have persistence and then have a strategy of how you would do it so you wouldn't risk everything is, is something that really carries over and that's you know the I'm a great believer in doing nothing is the worst thing you could do. It's an indefensible decision that you have, it's making no decision. And so you have to do something. And then the question is, will it work out properly? Well, there isn't time for perfect information in today's world. We're in an exponential logarithmic rate of growth. And as a result, we have to make decisions before we have perfect information. And towards that end, people are oftentimes paralyzed by the fact that they don't have perfect information. And that relates to COVID-19. We're going into a new normal. What that new normal is going to be is not yet clear. And it may not be clear, About the only thing that you can say is it's going to be different from what we experienced before. For a period of time, it's going to be quite different and then it'll come back to some degree of normalcy, but it isn't there. People have to come up with novel solutions to these ideas or they are not going to do it. They've got to try things that, that they wouldn't do before. Uh, give you two ideas of, of what I've seen that really appealed to me. One was uh, there's a problem with restaurants, which is when you have a limited number of people who can be seated in a restaurant, it's a, at high risk because the restaurant business is very low margin. You take away half the tables, uh, they can't cover the overhead that they're out there. Well, in this Lithuania, what they decided to do is they immediately granted rights to anybody that had a restaurant to be able to have uh, tables on the street or the sidewalk or in plazas, if they were lucky enough to be in plazas, to keep the same number of tables that they had. And given that the fact it's a summertime, you know, the weather's good, alfresco dining is good. But here, here's a solution that quickly was arrived at. And now some other cities are, are dealing with it. But uh, I read in my own city of Berkeley, uh, yes, it's a good idea, but we have to debate it. And we have to see how much space we can guarantee. And we're going to have a meeting for uh, that. And the meeting's going to be in July. We can't uh, decide until then. And, you know, so... Vilnius is immediately doing it. They're not worried about the risk of it. What's it going to do to block traffic? What's it going to do? Uh, all those things. That's the sort of thing that if you're doing nothing, it just it's not going to be there. And then, yeah, and, you know, there, there's other stories, uh, you know, one that I, I put in the uh, 
the book about the, the Whitakers about risk taking that sometimes you just know uh, these were two climbers who were very famous in, in the US. Uh, one was the first man on Everest, the other one was a uh, ran a climbing school on in the state of Washington and they were great raconteurs, they were great uh, climbers, uh, they were great people. But I was talking with one of them one time, and he was telling me the story. He had beer in his hand, as he often did, and often quite sure how good the story was. But the story went as follows: You know, he was saying, you know, we were above tree line, and uh, one of the people we were climbing with fell and broke his leg, and we knew that we had a problem. You know, we had to get him off the mountain. We particularly noticed that there seemed to be some problem rattling in his lungs, which meant uh, he was in danger of, of possibly dying. So we called down to have a helicopter fly up. And they said, you know, you're so high up, we don't know if a standard helicopter can get there. We don't have any jet helicopters. And he said, well, okay, uh, try what you can, because this is serious. And the helicopter flew up and actually was able to land they were breathed a sigh of relief and and they loaded the uh, the injured person on that and the the two brothers who were there who were, who were big guys they're six four six five very strong unusual for mountaineers uh looked at it and they said okay take it away and the helicopter tried to lift and tried to lift but it couldn't uh the extra weight and the, and the absence the thinness of the air it couldn't take off and so the two brothers looked at each other and they said, we know what to do. And they got on opposite sides of the helicopter. They grabbed the rails and did one, two, three, swinging it and threw it off the cliff. And the helicopter shot down, caught air, and made it back to the hospital. After a few more <laughs> sips of beer and a, a few laughs, I said, uh, Lou, <laughs> what happened if you're wrong? And his response is, sometime you just know. But, you know, it, he yeah. said, we, we acted in the moment. He said, but we knew, among other things, that we were strong and we could probably uh, throw it out that far. We knew that winds can always come up the mountain. So if we got it out far enough, the wind would grab it. It wouldn't just sink. We knew that the person we we're climbing with would probably die if it didn't happen. And we knew that doing nothing was not an option. So that's the sort of stories that I put in my book about do nothing, nothing happens, do something, and you're going to come up with some response. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, action, as you've been saying, there's so much that you learn from taking action. And a lot of times, especially in times like this, taking no action is going to, you know, put you under. There's no, you know, there's no way around it. And I've heard of, you know, countless business businesses that, I was sure we're going to make it through, but, you know, whether they took no action to adapt in any way or, you know, maybe they tried and failed. But ultimately, if you're trying something, you're a, you know, I think helping to almost alleviate some of the uncertainty, because if you're trying something, you know, maybe you're building in, um, you know, a new a new business model or um, a new audience or, you know, new customers or clients. But, I, you know, I think you can sort of build in certainty into this world that you know has become increasingly uncertain um and otherwise you know if you fail you might fail by doing nothing you might fail by trying something new you know yeah. what's <laughs> what's the harm in trying something rather, new rather fail the trying there's a great quote 
by Goethe, the, the German philosopher, that said, whatever you can do or believe you can, begin it. Because boldness has mm -hmm. genius and power and magic in it. And it's absolutely true, whether you're mm -hmm. starting a business, whether you're in a crisis, uh, doing something actually has ripples that positively impact those around you and leads them to feeling energized to be able to solve something. Paralysis is very negative. Paralysis of sitting there uh, impacts not just yourself, but everybody around you. So a leader has to realize that even when you don't know everything about where you're going, some decision is what makes people really enthused. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I mean, just to sort of wrap us up here, I don't know if there's anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with us or just, you know, some sort of go to actions for us to, to think about or, you know, anything that you want to sort of lead, lead well, us Well, you know, with. I'm working on a couple of things that are interesting. One, uh, I, because I'm doing some teaching online, I realize the weaknesses of that. So I'm working on a project with a, a few of my ex-students and a couple other instructors to reimagine online teaching, uh, basically wanting to disru disrupt everything uh, in teaching. And so it will be a new way to teach on Zoom where people are actually going to be able to stay engaged for a long period of time because engagement's there. Uh, the second thing I'm working on is health and wellness a company called Revive. They're actually doing IV drip therapy, which is improvement to the immune system, which is great right now. But they're also involved in DNA analysis where you can ultimately uh, find out how you interact with all the foods in the world, all of the drugs in the world, uh, and what sort of illnesses like COVID you might be uh, susceptible to and how susceptible. Uh, and so what all of these have in, in common, the two things I'm working on, is the fact that the world is going to be disrupted. If your company has not been disrupted uh, by other things, it's going to be. And it's not just COVID-19. By the year 2030, it was projected that 75% of the jobs that existed in the year 2000 will be gone. And they'll be gone because of digitization, democratization, and globalization. If you look at what I talked about in terms of revive and the DNA thing, what you're having is democratization. Uh, healthcare represents right now in the United States, roughly 17.3% of the GDP. Most elsewhere around the world is about 9%, a huge number, not sustainable to keep it that way. The way that you lower the cost of healthcare is two part. Uh, but the first part is you democratize it so that people can have their own health care decisions. So they don't have to go to the doctor all the time. And also by being proactive in terms of decisions. And if you use your DNA, you can decide what sort of diet you want or you can decide which drugs or not you would take. You will be able to, instead of being pro reactive, where, which is expensive, you'd be proactive in terms of your dealing with it. And so... As I said, I'm looking at digitization, democratization, globalization, in terms of uh, reimagining online teaching. It's almost inevitable that in the future, there's going to be a blend of online and in-person teaching once people go back. Uh, the, the portion that has not been studied or developed very well is, is the online portion. You have to take advantage of some of the opportunities that it allows that doesn't exist, and you have to get rid of some of the 
uh, flaws that exist. You can't just take a standard lecture and put it on the on a uh, online performance and have everybody appreciate it. I think it was Marshall McLuhan who once said the medium's a message. Well, uh, online is a whole new medium and there's got to be a new message. So I'm, I'm so excited about the change that's going to come to the world because we always wanted to change the world for the positive. And, and I did when we started the North Face. We believe we took some steps there. Uh, but I also have seen the world recently sliding back in a lot of bad habits. This time, the COVID-19, is, is a potential pivot to doing things in the right way. And if we learn from it, if we, instead of fearing the digitization or the democratization or the loss of jobs, look at the opportunities that could be created, look at what we can do with the wilderness. And just uh, as somebody who's an environmentalist, I'm just absolutely excited and and stunned frankly by the speed with which our planet is cleaning itself up people globally mm. stop moving around if you look in in india uh new delhi you could hardly see a uh, hundred feet beyond the uh, city now you can see all the way to the the himalayas if you want to do it if you look at the fact that there's dolphins coming into the uh, around the venetian or the venetian lagoons that exist. If you look at the animals coming into town, you look at uh, the air that exists right now, all of that's happening. Maybe people will see that for the wrong reason, maybe we're brought to realize that we could have a better uh, environment and everybody could be raised that way. That alone, if we, if we sustained with this, the healthcare cost will go down because the cost of the environment and the pollution we have is huge. So I know I sound okay. a little bit like I'm on a, a soapbox I am. I've always believed that uh, in the wilderness is the preservation of the earth. And I believe right now people can see that. And there's a lot of people going out walking and biking and hiking that maybe they see the, the, what I've been seeing for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now I'm, I'm looking out at a lake and you know, what seems like a million trees. And I just, you know, I, I, you know, I feel grateful and lucky that I have, you know, this view right now, but that I've had the opportunity. And I think that some people just, you know, they, they didn't maybe grow up in a world where they knew, um, what in an environment, um, could be, you know, uh, you know, I don't really know how else to say that, but you know, if you're not consistently exposed to what it could be like, I think these things that are happening, you know, it, this is, you know, maybe an ideal state to be in right now for the environment, uh, from the environmental standpoint. But even as we sort of move back into, like you said, you know, we're not moving around a lot right now, but even as we start to move around more, I just, I think, you know, what it's going to make people do is to, to realize, oh, shoot, like, this is nature and, and, you know, in the end, nature wins, right? So I think um, if we can at least see the, the, the impact that our lack of movement and lack of, you know, fossil fuel usage and all that stuff has had in such a short period of time, what we can do to be innovative, you know, to scale that and to, yeah, you know, we can still live a, a more realistic life, right? Like where, you know, we are still traveling and, and we're able to do this, but maybe it's, it's from a more uh, sustainably oriented mindset, right? So to your point about, you know, shifting to an online 
learning uh, modality, you know, similar in that vein, it's really about, you know, we're not going to boil the ocean, you know, we're not obviously not literally, but we're, we're not going to try to solve everything overnight. It's about using this as an opportunity to learn, to see the possibilities and to really just like figure out what's realistic, what we can scale, you know, regardless of, of how long it might take. But I think this has just highlighted the importance of so many things. And now's the time for leaders to really just sort of you know who's gonna step up I, I you know I think I was reading an article the other day about the greatest leaders are forged in crisis it's on HBR um, and I think that's so true Ooh. you know and and to to your experience you looked at things in you know around the late 60s when people weren't really looking at these sorts of things and I think we've things have become so normalized now where we got used to well carbon emissions well you know climate change it's just one of those things that we got so used to but this is sort of like shoved it in our face and while it's caused a lot of people hardships let's make use of it right that's sort of my view couldn't agree more (laughs) awesome um well thank you so much this has been such a wonderful conversation um to the audience make sure you check out haps books conquering the north faced and almost online or you know support local wherever you buy your books locally so this has been awesome thank you Brittany. So much, it's my Pat. pleasure all right take care at any given time especially in 2020 there are a number of social and environmental movements taking place whether you're leading a movement an organization or you're just interested in staying current Hap's perspective is an important one and i hope you enjoyed it What I really enjoyed about my conversation with Hap is that he illustrated the importance of conviction and thinking of creative ways to engage the wider population in a movement that was important to him. Not everyone has the same access to resources, of course, but it's important to make informed decisions so that you can support positive progress in society. It's important to remember that taking a risk as a new or experienced leader means that you have to be prepared for not everyone understanding your choice. But if you put the work in and your decision is informed, it doesn't matter who agrees with you at first. Though leadership, of course, indicates that people follow your lead. So as a new leader, putting a lot of time into having a strong foundation for your decision is particularly important. As an established leader, of course, the trust you've built with your team will ultimately be the momentum to drive your decision forward and bring it to life. 